Well, good morning. If we've never met before, my name is Chris Thayer, as uh, Pastor Ron just shared. Normally, uh, I would say, hey, I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to preach. I'm excited to share a message with you all. But that is not entirely true this morning. Uh, I am excited to see you all, just not from up here. Uh, And I'm going to explain why in just a few minutes. Um, But before I do that, let's pray. God, uh, you are good and you are holy You are worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. And Lord, I also just want to confess this morning that I'm powerless without you. But because of you, I'm not helpless. And so Lord, I pray that in the same way that the Apostle Paul prayed, um, that Lord, that my, my words would not be wise or persuasive, but they would have a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Pray that you would bring me your peace and your comfort. And I pray that you would wake us all to the presence of your Holy Spirit. Let us be changed people because of what happens in this space. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, uh, I'm not entirely excited to be up here this morning. And the reason for that is this is actually the first day that I've preached since 11 months ago, uh, and 11 months ago when I was preaching, I actually had a panic attack on a Sunday morning while preaching in front of hundreds of people in this room and online. Uh, Anybody who speaks for a living will actually tell you that the first 30 to 60 seconds are typically the hardest because your body floods your system with adrenaline And so when you start to speak, you might start to shake a little bit. Your heart rate starts to rise a little bit. Your voice might actually catch in your throat. And there are some tips and tricks that can kind of get you through those first 30 to 60 seconds. But typically, if you can make it through that time, then all of a sudden you can can settle down, settle into the pocket, and use all of that extra energy that you have to share what it is that you want to talk about with excitement. But 11 months ago, the last time that I preached from this stage, instead of things settling down after the first 30 to 60 seconds, they all ramped up. My legs started to shake so much that I felt like Thumper up here. (laughs) Kids, if you don't know who that is, go watch Bambi. It's a great movie. My heart started to beat so fast that it's all I could hear in my ears. I started to get tunnel vision. I couldn't remember where I was in my sermon, even though I had practiced and prepped. My hands started to drip sweat. My forehead started to sweat. And every time I reached over to grab a sip of water to try to give myself a second to calm down and and catch my nerves, my hand was shaking so much that I was afraid I was going to spill the water on the table or over myself or over the floor. You see, anxiety is a lie. It's the worst kind of lie. It's the kind of lie that your own body and mind tell you. And when you're going through a panic attack, what's happening is your body believes that there's a lion behind you that is getting ready to jump on your back and maul you to death. And the only thing that you can do is to run as fast and as far and as hard as you can. And so your body is dumping all kinds of chemicals into your system to turn you into a superhuman version of yourself that can do exactly that. 
And so anxiety preys on all of your fears and all of your insecurities. And on that Sunday morning, 11 months ago, all of mine were in full swing. And I didn't know what to do. I've dealt with anxiety for probably 10 to 12 years, uh, was diagnosed when I ended up in the hospital with some chest pain. So I knew what was happening. I knew that I was having a panic attack, but I'd never had it happen in this part of my life before. I've spoken from this stage or the stage over at Zor when we had our Zor campus, probably three to 400 times. And I'd never had this happen before, never had it touch this part of my life. So I didn't know what to do. And I did the only thing that I know to do when I don't know what else to do. I prayed. I stopped in the middle of the service, zero segue, zero nothing. I just said, hey, I'm gonna pray. And I confessed to God, I said, I'm anxious. I'm embarrassed. And I need you to quite literally come into my body, come into my mind and my heart and slow things down. Help me to catch my breath. Help me to live your peace. Help me to not be anxious, but instead to share this message that you put on my heart. And I also prayed that people who are in the room who wrestle with anxiety would know that they're not alone and that they would know that there's at least one other person who deals with it. And I said, amen. And somebody in the back, I have no clue who it was, shouted out, we love you, Chris. (laughs) And in that moment, I really appreciated that. If that was you, you can swing by afterwards and let me know. But I really appreciated that in the moment. I said, I love you too. And then I finished the sermon. And God was gracious He did calm me down. He did calm my heart and mind down in those moments. And I was able to get through it. And I wish I could say that that was the end. But it hasn't been. Because anxiety is constantly searching. It's constantly looking for that thing that it perceives as a threat to your safety. And so my anxiety has told me that there is a lion on this stage that is getting ready to pounce every time I step on it. And so when I've done the host spot announcements, almost every time I've started to panic. Luckily, they're short enough that I've been able to get off the stage quickly. (laughs) Or I've had a panic attack while sitting in a chair right over there, listening to the third song, knowing that that meant that I was getting ready to stand up and I was gonna have to speak again. Now, I I don't believe that anxiety is a sin. Having anxiety disorder is no more of a sin than having cancer is a sin. It's merely the product of living in a broken and fallen world. A, a, A world that's so broken that our relationship with our creator has been messed up, our relationship with one another has been broken, our relationship with creation, and even our relationship with our own body has been broken. So I don't believe that having anxiety disorder is a sin. However, in my anxiety, I can sin. Anytime I make that lion behind me bigger than the lion of Judah on the throne of heaven, I sin. 
Anytime I put more faith in my fears than my faith in my father, I'm sinning. And so when Talbot came to me a number of months ago and he said, hey, do you want to preach a sermon series in July? (laughs) I know what I wanted to say. No thanks. I'm good, bro. Ron Ron has nothing to do that month. (laughs) But instead, I said yes, because I knew that I couldn't allow that lion behind me to be bigger than the lion on the throne in heaven. But if I'm honest, it's hard. You see, anxiety is my thorn in my flesh. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church that he has some sort of a thorn in his flesh. Now, we don't know what it was. Maybe it was something like anxiety or depression. More than likely, it probably had something to do with his eyes, maybe a glaucoma or some sort of an eye disease. But he tells the Corinthian church, I have a thorn in my flesh. And he calls it a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. That's how bad it was for him. And think about Paul for a minute. The Apostle Paul was this this man who had these like massive spiritual muscles. He saw the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. He had witnessed God perform all kinds of amazing miracles around him and through him. So if anybody had the kind of faith required to ask God to do something that was really difficult, it was the Apostle Paul. And so he tells the Corinthian church, I asked God three times to take away this thorn in my flesh. And the Apostle Paul said three times, God replied, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And in my best moments, I'm glad that God's power is made perfect in weakness. I'm glad that he's able to use my brokenness to let so many people know on 11 months ago that they weren't alone. And I'm glad for the people who emailed me and said, hey, I really appreciate your authenticity. I really appreciate your vulnerability. I needed to see that because I needed to know that I wasn't the only one. And so I'm glad for those moments when God uses my weakness to display his strength. But the reality is, it gets hard. I remember sitting right here in a healing service that we had probably three or four years ago. And it's just a sort of a quiet, reflective atmosphere in this room. And we had some chairs set up front so you could come and receive healing from one of the teams up front. Um, And and I just told my wife, I said, hey, I I really need to go to church tonight and I need to pray. I I was tired of my anxiety. I was tired of the difficulty that I had dealing with it. And uh, so I just, I just sat there and I prayed and I, I begged God to take it away. And I remember that God just simply brought back to mind the words that he gave the Apostle Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. But sometimes I wonder, God, what are you doing? I mean, in prepping for this message and coming up here and just speaking from this stage, Many times, knowing that I had the entire message memorized, but still terrified that I was going to forget something, I was going to lose my spot. What do I do if? What happens when? 
And I wonder, God, what are you doing? I know you have the strength. I know you have the power. I know you have the ability to take away this struggle, but you seem content to walk with me through it rather than around it. What are you doing? And I know I'm not the only one who asks God, what are you doing? Did you know that in the United States alone, and these are pre-pandemic numbers which have only gone up, 18.1% of people in the United States wrestle deeply with anxiety. It means about one in five of you in this room wrestle deeply with anxiety. And if you're not one of them, I can almost guarantee you that you know somebody who's a family member or a close friend who does, even if you don't realize it. Or maybe for you, it's not so much anxiety so much as it is that crippling depression, those lead weights that you feel on your arms and your legs every morning when you wake up. And you know that there are certain things that are good for you to do that are healthy, that are helpful in overcoming depression, but you can't find the energy to go work out. You can't find the energy to connect with friends. You can't even find the energy to get out of bed in the morning. And you wonder, God, what are you doing? I've asked you to take this away, but you haven't. Or it's that cancer diagnosis or Alzheimer diagnosis, or heart disease diagnosis, that you or your family member or your friend received and you've asked God to take it away. And so far he hasn't. And you wonder, God, what are you doing? And in those moments, it's important for us to know that we're not alone, to know that we're not alone in this room that we're not the only ones who are wrestling, we're not the only ones who are asking God those kinds of questions. But one of the reasons that I love the library that we call the Bible is because it helps us to understand that not are we only not alone in this room, but we're also not alone in history. There is actually an entire letter of the Bible that was written to a group of people who were asking God, what are you doing? It's the letter to Hebrews in our New Testament. And the letter of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish followers of Jesus. That's why it's called Hebrews, because they were ethnically Hebrew. And they were caught in no man's land between two groups of people. You see, they lived in the first century under Roman control. And living in the first century under Roman control and saying three words got you in all kinds of trouble. Jesus is Lord. If you said Jesus is Lord you inherently said, Caesar is not. So if you say Jesus is Lord, that gets you in all kinds of trouble with the Roman Empire. And so their livelihoods and their lives were under threat because of that. Not only that, but they also believed that all of the scriptures, which is our Old Testament, because the New Testament hadn't been written yet, they believed that all of the Old Testament scriptures found their fulfillment in the person of Jesus that all of the prophets, all of the writings, all of it pointed to and found its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. They believed that he was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was the holy one that they had been waiting for, the ones that the prophets and, and everybody had pointed to and said, God's gonna do this great thing. He's gonna bring this Messiah who's going to, to resurrect the world. They believed that Jesus was that one. 
But this got them in trouble with their fellow Jews who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so again, their livelihoods and their lives were under threat. So they're caught in this no man's land. They're undergoing persecution. And they're wondering, God, what are you doing? It would be a lot easier if we gave up. It would be a lot easier if we simply said, okay, fine, Jesus isn't Lord. That'll appease the Romans. It'll appease the, our, the, our fellow Jews who are mad at us. And we won't undergo persecution anymore. But the author of Hebrews writes the entire letter of Hebrews to, to encourage them not to do that, to not give up hope, to not give up faith, to continue to trust in Jesus, even when things are hard, even when they're wondering, God, what are you doing? And the climax of his entire letter is Hebrews chapter 11. And he starts off Hebrews chapter 11 like this. He says in verse one, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. Now, when we read that in 21st century America, that sounds a lot to us like the author of Hebrews is saying, just have blind faith. Just trust God enough that he's gonna do something and, and it'll happen, whether or not you have reason to actually believe it or not. That's not true at all. Blind faith is not biblical. I'm gonna say that one more time. Blind faith is not biblical. The author of Hebrews isn't saying have blind faith. He's saying, hey, I want you to know that yes, trusting God does mean that you have to trust him for something that you can't see yet, but he hasn't left you without reason to trust him. And so he does this thing that at first glance to us seems pretty odd, but then we realize is absolutely brilliant. He gives them a history lesson. He reminds them of people who have gone before them, who have remained faithful to God in the ways that God has remained faithful to his people throughout history. And taking pride of place in this history lesson are the people of Abraham and Sarah. Now remember, the author of Hebrews knows that he's writing to a group of Jewish followers of Jesus. So he doesn't have to give them the entire story. He only has to remind them of the high points because they've been hearing these stories since they were little children. Their parents have been constantly telling them all of these stories, making sure that they were reading through the, the books of their Old Testament, of our Old Testament. They were making sure that they were hearing them all the time. So they heard them at home. They heard them on the road. They heard them in the temple. They heard them from their neighbors. They heard these stories all the time. And so the author of Hebrews reminds them of them. And again, taking pride of place is a story of Abraham and Sarah. And he says in chapter 11, starting in verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger. In a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundation, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Now, 
what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's saying, hey, I want you to see the way that God's people have remained faithful in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances. And he highlights Abraham and Sarah for several reasons. The first one is that God called Abraham and Sarah to leave their family and to go to another place that he was going to call them to. He was going to give them a new home. Now to us, that doesn't sound like a really big deal. Okay, leave your family, go somewhere else. I live about 800 miles away from my family in New York and about 600 miles away from my in-laws in Florida. Can we all say amen? <laughs> and get me in trouble with my wife who is sitting in the front row and giving me dirty looks. No, I'm just kidding. So I live about 800 miles away from my parents, 600 miles from my in-laws. Yes, there are some things that I miss from not being close to my family. I wish they were closer to their grandchildren more regularly. I wish they got to see them. I wish we had the babysitters regularly all the time. But it's not that big of a deal. My wife and I are still able to live easy lives here in Charlotte. We don't look to our families for protection. We have, we have uh, all kinds of ways that we're protected here in, in Charlotte. We pay taxes to the government that does all kinds of things, whether or not we think they always use it well. But we pay taxes to a government. We have a police force. We have lawyers. We have judges. We have a court of law. We have a military that does all kinds of things. So, so we're protected and life isn't really that hard for us to be away from our families. None of that existed for Abraham. The only way that Abraham had any protection was his family. He didn't have a police force. He couldn't call 911. He could only call his family. His family acted as a lawyer should there be a dispute. <laughs> and he needed to be stood up for. The military was his family, if their land was being taken away. So when God calls Abraham and Sarah to leave his family, it took an incredible amount of trust in God. So the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, if Abraham can trust God like that, in the midst of that kind of a difficult circumstance, when he's wondering, God, what are you doing? And so can you. Not only that, but Abraham and Sarah were given this crazy promise by God. God made a covenant, an agreement with them. He said, hey, I'm going to do this great thing through you. Through you, I am going to bless the world. I'm going to give you descendants that are as numerous as the stars in the sky. Look up to the sky, Abraham and Sarah. Can you count the number of stars in the sky? And they didn't live in Charlotte, North Carolina, where you could only see eight at night. <laughs> He said, look up to the stars in the sky. Can you count them? And he was out in the desert where he could see all of them. He says, one, two, nope, I can't. God said, so your descendants shall be. And Sarah starts to laugh. And she says, God, um, I'm, I'm past menopause. We don't know how everything works, but we know enough. That ain't happening. And God says, watch this. And yeah, there were some bumps along the way, but she trusted God. And God also said to Abraham, hey, I'm, I'm gonna give you this land. I'm gonna give it to your descendants. It was the land of Israel. God said, 
How are you gonna do that? And God said, just watch. Now, for Abraham and Sarah, these promises started to be fulfilled, but they didn't see their ultimate fulfillment before they died. You see, Abraham and Sarah, they only had one child, Isaac. But Isaac then had another son named Jacob, and Jacob gave birth to 12 sons who would then become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel would blossom and grow as a nation. And when Abraham died, the only land that he had was the land that he was buried in. But eventually, when the Israelites would cross the Jordan River, God would give them the land that he had promised to Abraham. And the great part about the author of Hebrews reminding this group of people about that is this group of people was in the fulfillment of that promise. They were the descendants of Abraham. They were living in the land that God had promised he would give to Abraham. And so not only are they seeing the incredible faithfulness of Abraham and Sarah and how in the midst of difficult circumstances, they were able to trust God. And the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, if they can trust God, so can you. But he's also saying, hey, and God remained faithful to them. Even if Abraham and Sarah didn't see the completion of the fulfillment of the promises that he gave them with their earthly eyes, they will see it with their resurrected eyes. God remained faithful to his promises. And so if God remained faithful to Abraham and Sarah, if God came through on his promises to them, then God will come through on his promise to you, which is that one day Jesus will return and he will put everything right. There will be no more anxiety. There will be no more depression. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more brokenness. So hold on. So hold on. Keep your faith. Don't give up, don't give in. Don't allow your fear to outpace your faith, to outpace your trust in your heavenly father. And then the author of Hebrews says, hey, all of these people who came before you, it didn't stop with Abraham and Sarah. He goes on and he talks about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses' parents and Moses, the people of Israel, Rahab. And then he just starts talking about all kinds of people, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. He keeps going on and on and on and on. And he says, and all of these people, all of these people had that kind of faith in God without seeing the person of Jesus. All of them knew that God was going to be doing something great in the world, that somehow or another, he was going to restore all of creation back to himself but they didn't know how God was going to do it. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, if they can remain faithful in the midst of those difficult circumstances and without having witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, then so can you. He says in chapter 12, verse one, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. If this is your family, if this is the people who have gone before you, then you can remain faithful. The faithfulness of God's people and the faithfulness of God displayed in their lives. And then he continues 
into the next two verses and he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the climax of the climax, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I love this. He brings up Jesus because he wants to show the way that Jesus is the embodiment of the faithfulness of God's people, first off, because Jesus submitted to the will of his heavenly father, even when it was incredibly difficult for him. The night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus was so terrified that he was sweating blood and he cried out, God, if there is any other way, if there is any other way that all of creation that all of humanity can be restored, then let this cup pass for me. Let me not be crucified on the cross. And then he said, but not my will be done, but yours. The faithfulness of God's people. But then also, inside of Jesus, the faithfulness of God. Because Jesus in some mysterious way, fully human and fully divine. The second person of the Trinity, God himself, in the person of Jesus, lived a perfect and sinless life, was crucified on a cross, buried in a tomb, and then resurrected on the third day, defeating death. The faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of God's people wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, you know what? Don't stop it here. Keep it going. It's not only the faithfulness of all of these people who came before Jesus and the faithfulness of Jesus, it's also the faithfulness of Matthew and James and John and Paul. It's the faithfulness of Mother Teresa and Billy Graham and all kinds of people who are working to end human trafficking today. See, what the author of Hebrews is really saying to his audience is this. When you can't see what God is doing, look at what he's already done. When you can't see what God is doing, look at what he's already done. You see, this message is a message that I've had to live because so often it's so hard to see, God, what are you doing? And I've got to be continually reminded of what he's done. What he's done throughout all of history with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Samuel, the person of Jesus, the author of Hebrews, the audience of Hebrews, but it's also continued on to today. It's that friend of mine who's wrestled deeply with anxiety. And so over the past 10 years, I've been able to connect with him, share with him my struggle. He hasn't tried to fix me. He hasn't tried to give me an answer. He's just simply been there for me. And he's encouraged me because I've seen the tremendous healing that God has brought in his own life as he's wrestled with anxiety. Not perfect, but a lot further along, and I'm able to celebrate what God has done in his life. It's my life group. 
who when I told them, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this, this is what happened, this is what I'm dealing with and I have to preach. I'm gonna be preaching on July 10th. And they told me, you know where we sit, we'll be there, we got you. It's my wife who sat through both of these services and sat up front and been praying the whole time. When you can't see what God is doing, look at what he's already done. It's that couple that I know that's walking through end of life with cancer, body racked with pain, all kinds of difficulty, all kinds of struggle as they navigate dealing with cancer and ravaging the body. And I sit down and I chat with them for an hour as they're walking through all of these struggles. And you know how they ended that meeting? They didn't end that meeting by saying, hey, here's, here's some ways that you can help us, which is completely justified, and I wish they would, because they could use it. But you know how they ended that meeting instead? Hey, we've been walking through this, and, and we'd love to walk alongside of some other people who need some encouragement. When you can't see what God is doing, look at what he's already done. So where is it for you? Where have you allowed your fears to outpace your faith? Where has that lion that's been crouching behind you been bigger than the lion on the throne of heaven? And where do you need to challenge it and say, hey, my God is bigger. My God is better. And he's proved it. And his character never changes. And so I might be walking through the most difficult time in my life that I could ever imagine but I can get through it because I can remember what God has already done. And I know that he has promised that one day Jesus will return and one day he will take away all anxiety. One day he will take away all depression and all pain and all heartache. And I might not see that in my life with these eyes, but I will see it with my resurrected eyes and I can trust that reality. When you can't see what God is doing, look at what he's already done. And maybe you'd say to me this morning, hey, you know what? Things have been going great in my life. That is awesome. I am so glad for that. How can you share that and not keep it to yourself? Because there's some people around you that need to see what God has done in your life so they can walk through the questions the difficulty that they're having in their own. When you can't see what God is doing, look at what he's already done. May it be true in your life, in my life, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you are good and that you are holy. And Lord, thank you that you care about us. I pray that we would live in light of that reality, that we would remember what you've done throughout all of history and around us even to today so that we can trust you even when we walk through our fears. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.